Tracy. My name's Carla, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I, too, am delighted to be here. I want to thank Mike for the invitation and Dawn and the committee for putting this all together. I know this, these things don't put themselves together. It takes a lot of help, a lot of hands, and uh, a lot of uh, follow-up throughout the year. And uh, so thank you all for that, and thank you for keeping in touch with me, Tracy. And Tracy and Bob picked us up from the airport, and, and I love it when we get uh, picked up by NEA enthusiasts, you know. <laughs> and uh, I could tell right away we had some of those. And, uh, and so uh, our weekend's been really great, and getting to share it with old friends, Sheldon and Harold as well. And, and then uh, an old friend from Doug's hair days, Anita, came out. And, and so it's like a, um, it's just a, just a nice deal, family all over the place. Uh, It's um, it's funny to uh, to think about. I was thinking about God, you know, and how we we talk about God showed up. God showed up, and and I think all these years. My sobriety date is September twenty fifth, nineteen eighty seven. So um, I've been through a few incarnations on God and my concept of God over time. You know, when I got here, I was just so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous in that. I didn't have to be any more than I was or know any more than I knew when I got here. So I was really the bewildered one. I'd had a lot of experience with a lot of different ideas about God and always found them or me wanting in them. I just couldn't get connected and I always knew there was a power greater than myself that always some great power that runs in and around and through us, you know, always knew that, but I just couldn't stay connected. Get there once in a while. Spiritual experiences, had spiritual experiences, but couldn't keep them, couldn't hang on, couldn't keep that connection. And uh, I mean, even un, uh, uh, spiritual experiences without the help of LSD and pot and, and you know, of course, the magic elixir alcohol, even before that. And um, But when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, it seems to be the thread that pulled you know, the final thread, or the, the thing that pulled the final thread in the curtain that stood between me and the sunlight of the spirit. Because then I could make a beginning, and for some reason, some reason I was able to stay sober, and the alcohol was gone, the other stuff was gone, and then now there's me. <laughs> now there's me that stands between me and the sunlight of the spirit. And that is the hilarious big joke. And uh, and the kind of the fun of it, the kind of the process of the whole thing, um, uh, and I have, it has taken me a long time, you know, some people sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, I've had a lot of fun over 28 years, but, but sometimes I look around and I think, oh my God, I just, did I just, did I just figure that out? Did I just see that? And uh, so it's always new and exciting. And if you're new, I, I, I hope that you come in and just start to fall in love with the journey because there's just always more. There's just really always more. And like the other speakers said, when I got here, I thought it was very important to try to figure out why I'm an alcoholic. Was it my crazy, dark, dramatic, violent, perverted family? If you had my family, you'd drink too. You know, and I found out that that'll give you an inventory. It didn't make me alcoholic. Um, and like Sheldon said last night, lots of people went through a lot worse things than I did. Criminal minds kind of families, you know. And, um, and yet never became alcoholic. Alcohol just didn't do it for them. And my husband's another one. He grew up, his family, his father painted the family pickup truck the color of his high school, okay? That family. I mean, I, you know, when we go to visit, I still get a little sugar headache, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's sweet, sweet. 
it's just real sweet being in the midst of them, you know, because they didn't have to go to a class to learn how to love each other. They just do, you know. They just love each other. They sing together. They grew up. And uh, my family's, uh, we loved each other, but we just couldn't keep it up, you know. I mean, <laughs> it was it was buried inside all kinds of dysfunction and sickness. I don't even like the word dysfunction, but sickness. We just couldn't do it, couldn't, couldn't keep it out there. So, so uh, yet... He sits right next to me in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcohol did for and to him exactly what it did for and to me. And we all have our own version of that. If you're sitting in here and alcohol did for and to you what it did for and to me, then welcome. And, uh, and if you're new, if you don't think that, uh, you, know, you know, some of our stories are very, very different. And if you don't relate to mine, uh, somebody in here has your circumstantial story. But underneath all of it, underneath all the circumstances, we, we all came to that point that we all seem to have to come to before we come into AA and are willing to do any kind of changing or willing to have any kind of surrender. We've all come to that point where we were either drinking or thinking about drinking, drinking or thinking about drinking. I have an allergy of the body. I couldn't have told you that back then. Didn't know that. Allergy of the body and obsession of the mind. And the allergy happens when I'm drinking and the obsession happens when I'm not. You know, I can't. The best description of alcoholic, alcoholism I've ever seen, I think, to this day is on page 44 in the big book where it says, if when you honestly want to, cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. He'll diagnose you. Boom. There it is. If that's you, welcome. We have a solution for that. And I was just so, because when I got here, that was the single thing. That was it. That was it. And the shingle on the door said Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I went in there, they were talking about alcoholism. They weren't talking about, they weren't talking about anything but alcoholism. And I knew I was in the right place. And I knew I could sit all the way down finally. Sit all the way down. Even though I wasn't sure it was going to work for me, I was kind of, you know, the obsession didn't leave me till I was about nine months sober. I didn't have to feel like being here to be here to do the things that you asked me to do. That obsession just seemed like it was never going to leave, you know. And it wasn't like I wasn't surrendered to my illness either. It was, um, I just didn't know if this was going to work, but it seemed to be working for you. And there was something strange that strangely kept me coming back. I just kept coming back, maybe because there was nowhere else to go. But anyway, my, uh, my father and my mother split up early, and so my mother was a single mother of two girls for a, a long time. We went from, we moved from house to house for the rent, and we, so we were always starting a new school. I was a new kid on the block a lot. And, uh, and I, you know, when I was six years old, I didn't run right out to the boulevard of broken dreams and start smoking my cigarettes and hanging out, you know, in the darkness of all, all the world. I mean, some dark things happened, so I was a dark kid sometimes. But sometimes I was kind of personable, and I was social, and I liked playing games. And whatever it was we were doing at the new school, I wanted to do it too. You know, if we were running track, let's do that. If we were doing academics, I want to know. If we were uh, doing school politics, get me in the middle, you know. And I'm a, I've got a little bit of a competitive bone too, which doesn't make me alcoholic. Lots of people, non-alcoholics, are competitive. You know, there's a lot of neuroses that we talk about like it's alcoholism, you know. And what I've discovered over the years and have come to believe is that a lot of... Uh, Alcoholics are neurotic. Not every neurotic is an alcoholic. And, and I think we need to know that when we start to talk about singleness of purpose. And that, I don't know about St. Louis, but I know that in California it's become an issue. Singleness of purpose is not, uh, you know, when we're talking about alcoholism, it is not a lot of the things I hear that we're talking about. So 
I, I have to come back to basics. And anyway, so that didn't make me alcoholic. And but I did, you know, I I was a competitor. And uh, by the time sixth grade was over, I was a I wanted to be the uh, first woman president. I wanted to be the first one, woman major league baseball player. I wanted to be the first woman to run a four minute mile. You know, God, by the time all that was over, I was tired. I needed a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and the deal was, when I took that drink, it worked. And those weren't the first drinks I ever took. I had taken drinks all along. You know, in the family, we, my mother loved to party. She had a little, when I was like three years old, they told me about this because I don't remember. I, I don't know if it was a three-year-old blackout or just because I was young. But uh, my mother had a bottle of Jack Daniels under the sink. It was the only bottle in the house at the time. My father never drank because he comes from a long line of alcoholics. And he's just a pre-Al-Anon, a continuous pre-Al-Anon. And, uh, but I guess I got a hold of the bottle of Jack Daniels, and they found me sitting in the, in the kitchen screaming at the top of my lungs with whiskey uh, you know, all down the front of me, and just screaming at the top of my lungs, and a lot of my drunks after that were just the same as that. <laughs> Not a lot changed, bro. But, um, but around set, I was around 11 years old, and I got my first social resentment behind a game of spin the bottle. Um, I know they don't even play that game these days. They just get right down to business. <laughs> and we were at uh, junior high, middle school. They call it middle school now. Uh, it was that summer going right before that. And I was at my friend Leonard's house, and we were playing spin the bottle, passing on a bottle of his dad's whiskey and spinning the bottle. And the bottle we were spinning landed on me, and I ended up in the bedroom with one of the boys, and we were both doing the same thing as far as I could tell. But when we came back out of that bedroom, they called him a player and me a slut. I did not think that was fair. I still don't think it's fair if you want to know the truth. But every sponsor I've ever had has told me that the fair comes around once a year and it lasts two weeks. That's all. (laughs) So, and I had ideas already. I was born. You know, a lot of things happened in my in my family and with babysitters, babysitters, boyfriends, things about sex that I just I had to come to my own conclusions about. I didn't understand. Sometimes I liked them. Sometimes I didn't. And so I come into junior high in a very conservative neighborhood playing games that I just thought, you know, and, and it was a sexual revolution, you know. So I'm watching on the news. We had peace, love, flowers, and I love those people. So I'm thinking, you know, now it's in the bottle. That's my launching pad, right? But no. You know, I didn't understand the unwritten rules in junior high, like good girls do and say they don't or don't and say they do. I still don't think I have that right. But uh, I got a reputation I didn't understand, nor could I take responsibility for in junior high. And a reputation like that goes through junior high like wildfire. And after a while, boys my age were looking at me funny, and so were the girls. And, uh, and I did what I did when my pride kicked in. My feelings got hurt, and I... You know, started to back away from my life, fight for a while to stay in, and then just started to let go. And started spending more time in the girls' room than I did in the classroom and hanging out with the other girls who were backing away from their lives. Bringing stuff from our mother's medicine cabinets and from their upper cabinets and hanging out until after a while. You know, one more time, I just felt like I had to take my life into my own hands. And it wasn't like I didn't believe in God, but I just, he wasn't fast enough, big enough, uh, strong enough. I was getting hurt, and I didn't understand it, so I was on my own. And one of my favorite places to be back then was on my way to somewhere else. And I'd get out there on the on-ramp, so the 10 freeway coming east and the 101 going north, and I'd stick my little thumb out on that on-ramp, and I'd crawl in the car or the truck going wherever with whoever, and I'd be on my way, on my way to somewhere else, because hope is just up the road, don't you understand? And it always felt kind of like the bottle in the glove compartment for me, you know, like I didn't even have to have that thing open to already feel better. I'd just be out there under the open sky with my thumb out and already feeling better. And I never made any big plans about what I was going to do when I got there. I just left, and it felt better. 
In fact, I could have sat in a car for the rest of my life going on, being on my way and been okay. You know, that's what it felt like. Consequently, because I was so young, I started ending up in some of the Southern California hotspots like Indio Jail and Riverside Juvenile Hall and <laughs> L.A. Central, and we did that whole deal for a while. And when I was 14, I found myself in a place called North Beach in the San Francisco area where a couple of, couple of guys, well, we got one long ride all the way up from Santa Barbara. I was with a friend, and a guy dropped us off in the middle of this party town, you know, bright lights, big city, we're 14, looking around. To my left was a Condor Club and Carol Dota's flashing boobs, and to my right were the hookers and dealers and pimps, and and uh, just, uh, we were not on that street for 10 minutes before a couple of guys approached us, offered us money for sex, and we said yes, and did the next indicated thing, and boom, a whole new career path opened up for us. And I started living a day at a time the way I've not had to live in a very, very long time. And Dr. Silkworth talks about in the chapter of the doctor's opinion that after a while we can't differentiate the true from the false. After a while our alcoholic life seemed the only normal one. And if you'd asked me back then, I would have told you this was the way it was supposed to be. Just one, the, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. This is who I was meant to be. Deep down inside, I always thought there might be something wrong with that, but that's not what my life looked like, so we just went with it. And alcohol seemed to soothe that. When I discovered what alcohol would do for me, I just let it. You know, it was a long time in. I mean, it let me, it, it was my spirituality. It was my, uh, it was my peace of mind. It was my maturity. It connected me to you and it buffered me from you. It did everything. It did everything and a lot faster than God did. You know, it gave me that illusion that I was okay no matter where I was and that everything was supposed to be happening. Everything around me was supposed to be happening. It created the, the illusion, the delusion, and then it preserved it until it didn't anymore. And a year later, I was being admitted to a mental hospital. I was supposed to be there for two weeks observation, and I ended up being there for a year. I just sort of made myself at home and moved in. Everything about my life, everything about my beliefs or hopes or dreams or anything that I'd had, any God-given talents or potential that I'd had, I'd begun to trade away for the effect that alcohol produced. And then by the time I got to that hospital, it was shattered. It was just shattered. It was nothing. They were not talking to me a lot about alcoholism. It was not a treatment center. It was a hospital. There weren't a lot of treatment centers around back then, around there. And so it was a hospital, and a lot of my roommates had real illnesses, real manic depression, real schizophrenia. It exists. It's real. Untreated, when I've got no steps of fellowship or got in my understanding, I've got no booze, I look a lot like them for a while. It takes a little while to sort all that stuff out. So in the meantime, they're giving me daily nutritional supplements, Thorazine, Melaril, Valium, Dalmain sleepers. I suppose they were concerned I wouldn't sleep. And I'd become intimately familiar with five-point restraints, and that's what I look like at 15. And if you don't want to go crazy in the night house, you've got to get busy. And one of my favorite ways to be busy was the boys. I've already told you that. I loved all the boys. But my favorites were those sexy smoldering types, you know the kind. They just sit back there and simmer. <laughs> You just never really knew when they were going to blow, did you? You know, they're just oh, I used to find them so exciting. Now, today I know that feeling is fear. <laughs> the trouble with that guys like that in the nut house is that they're usually hiding from a junior prison sentence. You know, they don't want to go to California Youth Authority, so they're trying to lay low in the nut house, but they can't. They got nothing. You know, so they eventually they blow. Like my first boyfriend, he ended up blowing and throwing a chair through the big plate glass window of the boys unit and then my next boyfriend he blew and he threw a, a nurse through the big plate glass window of the boys <laughs> unit so that was progressive too 
I didn't know what I, Chuck C. used to say this, but it's been said even before that. It's a long time. It's said in the Bible, the kingdom of God is within you. I didn't know what I came looking for, I came looking with. I didn't know that what I was looking for was already inside me, so I was looking out there for what I thought would fix me. You know? And the trouble with that is I'm always, always about half a bubble off what it is I think I see. You know, I, I'd mistake arrogance for confidence. I'd mistake sex for love. I'd mistake brute strength for strength of character. And I'd get it up in my hot little hands and it would just dissolve where I stood because it wasn't it. Wasn't it? I had to come to AA to learn that it's when thinking of you, constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. That's what makes that feeling of conscious separation disappear. And I don't know about you, but I've always thought I should have a soundtrack to my life. Did you ever feel like that? I, I always, you know, some music playing in the background of all this drama going on. You know, sometimes maybe Bob Dylan following me around, singing a ballad, you know, setting the mood. You know, another day maybe a mariachi band just to <laughs> Some days just flat out rock and roll, you know. One afternoon I was sitting outside on the smoke break bench and I was watching my boyfriend Terry being cuffed and escorted off by security. He's the one who threw the chair through the window and he's gone, he's gone, he's off. And I'm heartbroken. I'm just heartbroken because this had been a real relationship, you know, two, three weeks or something. And I was seriously, seriously devastated. And, and so I'm smoking my tragic cigarettes and channeling Greta Garbo. You know how we want to be alone. <laughs> and watching him leave, watching him leave. And just inside the girls' unit, I could hear Diana Ross singing at top decibel, touch me in the morning, then just walk away. <laughs> It took me a long time to realize I was brokenhearted and blue before I ever had a real date. <laughs> the way I was looking, the way I was looking, looking out there for what I thought was going to fix me. And went from the girls' unit to the co-ed unit to the unit where they put the patients they just don't know what to do with anymore. And I just disintegrated day after day after day inside that hospital. Just let go. And somewhere along the line began to surrender to the thought that maybe I'm just one of those little nuthouse lifers. Every now and then I'm going to get out and I'm always, always, always going to end up back inside. Why? Because as soon as I hit the street, I am back doing the very thing that got me locked up in the first place. And even with all the trouble that it caused so early on for me, alcohol was still the thing that did it. It was still my best solution. It was still the thing. And I'd find my way out of that hospital every now and then, under the gate or over the fence or however I had to get out there, and I'd be out for a week or two, and I'd come right back in the front door. Why? Because I live there. That's where I live. I live in the nut house. And by the time I got to that last unit, I was uh, no longer bathing or getting dressed because you don't have to do that to date in the night house. And um, <laughs> I had casts on both my arms uh, up to my shoulders because I'd been cutting. And I just really generally surrendered, just given up. I met my boyfriend on this unit, uh, my next boyfriend, and, he, and then he got released. And uh, I don't know, a couple days, a week or so later, he waited on the other side of the wall for me while I climbed down the fence and, and uh, joined him. I always wonder what kind of boyfriend I had that would sit on the other side of the nuthouse wall and wait for his girlfriend to jump over the chimney <laughs> <laughs> and hop in his car and go away. And we lasted about two weeks. I was 16, he was 22, and it was just, you know, I was coming off Thorazine, he introduced me to cocaine, and I think it was just too much of a jar for him. And uh, my probation officer, oddly enough, um, 
knew exactly where to find me just a couple weeks later, and it hurt my feelings later to find out he'd called her. <laughs> Come get her, she's right here. <laughs> and I was in one lockup after another. You know, they tried to rehab, they tried a girl's home, they tried all that stuff with little stays in between in juvenile hall, always sitting in front of a judge, waiting for placement, waiting for placement. My dad used to say, they're just trying to buy you some time, Carla. And maybe they did, you know, after all that therapy and all that stuff that just couldn't take. I was just immune to any of that good, uh, you know, a lot of good information. I just couldn't hear it, wasn't interested, wasn't me, you're not talking about me, none of that. But I think maybe it helped save my life till I could get to you when I was 29 years old. I come from a family where my baby sister committed suicide at the age of 17. My baby brother died at 30 of drug addiction and alcoholism. And my last remaining sibling lives in Wisconsin and she can't stop drinking. So maybe I did. Maybe they bought me some time. The last place I was in was in a girl's home. And here's where I want to tell you, you know, again, we began to practice all of those things about God that I used to love. I wanted to find out I was a real seeker, you know, even though I was drinking all the time. Drinking was just the, the best the best substitute, but I'm someone who likes to peek behind the curtain. You know, I want to know what's going on. I want to, I could feel it. I wanted to touch it. I wanted to, to have that sense of peace of mind. Because I knew in, in the wee hours of the morning, you know, I'd lay there and I'd be panicked. And I just didn't know. I didn't know if I was good or bad or wrong or what was going on. And and I heard so much hope in the days of the hippies. You know, they had that wonderful, wonderful music, all of that. I, I knew that they were my people. You know, even though I was 12 in 1969, the 60s were over by the time I got out in the world. But I used to watch the news, you know, and those people didn't take crap. They stood up. They weren't little wimpy hippies. They stood up. They gathered up together and they marched. They said no. And they had peace and love and flowers and all of that stuff. And they had beautiful music like Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Traffic and Blind Faith, those spirited marching songs and, and love songs. And I wanted what they had, you know. All of us knew there was there was spirit. Um, everybody in the world, every, every human being has ego, has spirit, you know. Uh, not a foreign concept. I was born into a Southern Baptist uh, home. And that religion worked very well for my mother till the day she died. I tried being a Catholic for the couple for a couple of weeks in the fourth grade, you know. <laughs> really, really lie. I had some friends I'd go visit, and and uh, and there would be, they had these pictures of them when they were doing their first communion, you know, little girls in white dresses and saying the rosary, and it just, I, I wanted some of that, you know, and. Uh, I gave up on that after a little bit because I, you know, deep is a mud puddle. Got to go if it's not working right away, you know. I uh, started burning black candles and praying to the other guy for a while, you know, just just imagine my bets, really. I just wanted to be on the side that was winning. <laughs> scared, you know, scared all the time that I was so wrong. What's wrong? What's wrong? The television series Kung Fu came out. Some of you guys might remember that show. God, I love that guy. You know, he guy, a Buddhist priest named Cain, walked the Wild West in bare feet. You know, he was he was a tough, was a tough guy. Just ever so peaceful and walked around uh, from town to town and looked looked very different. But he had that had that little bag. Of, I don't know what was in that bag on his belt, but he looked pretty peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> 
walk from town to town, and because he looked different, sometimes he'd be greeted by a whole group of guys, hostile, hostile, and they'd come at him and they'd assault him verbally. And he'd just stand there ever so peacefully, and pearls of wisdom just rolled off his tongue. Not a lot of words, just boom, the right words. And you'd see their faces change, and they'd go off to help people right away. <laughs> and I thought, my God, that's power. I'd see the power in that, right? Or the power of a few words that came from spirit that was real on TV. <laughs> I wanted, you know, those little things that resonate. Then he'd walk to another town, and this time he'd be met by a whole other group of guys, and this time they'd assault him physically. And when they did that, he kicked their ass. <laughs> and I wanted what he had. It seemed to me that there was, this was strength and, serenity, strength and serenity personified. This is, this is who, this is what I wanted inside. So we followed that around. We brought this, brought this to the girls' home. My friend, my girlfriend, my other roommate, she was on the same page. And, uh, and, and we were talking to our friends about it, and all of our friends said they were older, you know, so they knew they lived in the 60s. And they said, man, San Francisco's gone to seed, but you've got to go to Oregon. That's where those people are. And I thought, dang, there are people, and they're in Oregon. So we went out the second-story window of that girl's home and down the tree and into Randy's talking off to Oregon where God might be. And I never could stop drinking. You know, we got up there, and I don't know about you, but I never went anywhere new thinking, let's go screw this up too. Always went somewhere new thinking, for start clean slate. We're going to start over. It's going to be good. And we went up there, and they rented a little house. They let me come with them. We're going to get back to the land. It was going to be good. And we planted a garden in the front yard. That's when I learned that when they talk about hoeing in Springfield, Oregon, they meant with a tool. <laughs> Two things happened that I certainly couldn't see while it was happening, and our book talks about that too, many of us showing symptoms and signs of alcoholism long before we're ready, willing, or able to do anything about them. Alcohol was still working even with all the trouble that it caused. Sometimes we'd go without alcohol. I was a terrible thief, and I did not want to be locked up. So we'd go a few days without alcohol, and when I had no booze and I had no sufficient substitute, no steps, fellowship, God of my understanding, nothing that stood between me and it, I was miserable. My life quickly became your fault. Hard to be around. And then when we could drink the way I needed to drink, I was always overshooting the mark. And that was happening again and still at 17. My friends had asked me to leave, and I was asked to leave a lot. And the conversation always went something like this, Carla, we love you, but you got to go. <laughs> you got to go. And I ended up in a roundabout way at my father's house against his better judgment just for a little while. He couldn't take it. We hadn't been together in a very long time, and, and uh, so now I'm living in his house, and we'd get up at the same time in the morning, and he'd take off for work, and I'd go sit in his den, and I'd drink from his liquor cabinet. It was a beautiful liquor cabinet. I have no idea why he had it. He didn't drink a drop. He comes from a long line of violent alcoholics. You know, so I figured it's got to be there for me. And I'd drink, and he'd come home in the afternoon and see me sitting in the very spot where he'd left me that morning. And I'd see that broken-hearted look on his eyes, and I'd have nothing to say for myself, nothing to say to soothe that. And he watched me till he couldn't watch me anymore. And then he came to me and said, what I know were the hardest words he ever had, had to say to his oldest daughter. And that's, I'm not going to watch you die, and I'm not going to help you do it. you got to go. And on my way out the door, all I could remember is one of the counselors at the rehab had told me I was a great actress. And I know today I must have misunderstood, because I ended up on Hollywood Boulevard. and <laughs> Not a lot of auditioning going on out there. <laughs> 
I was 18 years old, starting my days off with a pint of pop-off vodka, and I would go wherever they took me. And some days it was a party, and some days it was just surviving. And there was not a lot of hope about it getting any different. And even to this day, I love driving down Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and I love seeing that same bus stop right there at Sunset in Poinsettia, and I see a whole new generation of the same girls sitting out there with very little hope about it getting any different. Only now I get to say a prayer of gratitude for myself and a prayer of hope for her that maybe someday she'll get to find us if alcoholism is her problem. A few months into that, I met a man walking down Hollywood Boulevard, and I saw the light in his eyes, and I didn't realize it was orange sunshine, but we hit it off. And <laughs> I moved in with him that night, and uh, I didn't even know his last name. And six weeks later, he's asking me to leave, and I still don't know his last name. But I like to bring him up because years later he was on my eight-step list. He was someone who came to mind very quickly and clearly that I owed him amends. You know, that not everybody was clear on my first inventory, maybe not even my first couple, but he was. And it was just in the writing that I saw it, knew what I'd done, knew what I needed to do to make it right. But I couldn't find him. I spent the last part, after I made amends to my immediate family and those that I could reach, then he was uh, someone I started to seek out at the end of my first year of sobriety. And I, of course I couldn't find him. I went everywhere I knew to look, everywhere we'd ever been. And of course I couldn't find him. And so my sponsor finally said, you know, you're going to have to leave that alone. If you're supposed to find that guy, you'll find him, but in God's time, not yours. You're going to have to, you know, you're chasing your tail right now. Just you, you, There are a lot of places you can be of service right here, right now, instead of looking for something or somebody that's not there. So, you know, uh, if you really want to change the way your life is going, why don't you just try to be a friend to a man in a vertical fashion? Why don't you start there? <laughs> you know, that's not in the big book, but it's a good idea. <laughs> and to tell you the truth, when I got here, I did not need a lot of pushing in that direction, although I needed a lot of help on what that looked like. You know, I knew when I got here that I didn't have self-respect. I knew that when I saw you, some of you did, but I didn't have the least idea as to how to get there and how to stay there. And I learned here in Alcoholics Anonymous that character is built in the dark. Character, we have sponsors that help us and peers that help us. My real character is built when nobody's looking. I got to do the right thing when nobody's there, when nobody's there. And I like that, you know. I love that she told me that because it gave me a visual. It gave me something that I that I could understand. And never a judgment about it. And you know, she was just a lady who used to drink on her couch in her dirty nighty. That's those were her words, you know. She never went to any of the places I did. She didn't judge me about that. She just she just showed me how to do it differently. She taught me the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, I didn't even like her God. I, I did not like her God. I didn't like some of the things she believed. But she didn't tell me, I, she told me I didn't have to have her idea, have her concept. She said, if you do this, you'll find your own. So right about my, right before my 13th AA birthday, I had to go give a talk on the other side of town. It was a hot Sunday afternoon, and I didn't feel like going. And thank God you guys have taught me it's not how I feel, it's what I do that matters. I said I'd be there, I'll be there, right? Unless I can't, then I make a call. But I'm accountable. Showing up is one of the most profoundly simple things you guys taught me to do with the biggest results. Just show up. Just show up and see what happens. Show up and see what happens. I used to think I could blow off a dinner for two and not be missed, really. You know, just didn't see it. <laughs> I'd always say, yes, yeah, let's do that. I ain't coming. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk to you about it again. We're just, okay, yeah. It's nice to be invited, isn't it? I just don't want to go. <laughs> 
So I showed up at that meeting and I gave that talk and of course I felt better. Of course I felt better. And when the meeting was over, the thank you line came through and this man stopped and he said, hey, where were you in 1976? It was a guy from Hollywood Boulevard standing in front of me with eight and a half years of sobriety and I with almost 13. Only a very well-organized, loving universe could have made that happen when I had all my efforts to get it done and my own steam couldn't get it done. I just couldn't get it done. I always think, you know, even as, with good intentions, that I think I know how it's supposed to be when it's supposed to be. And I let go of that. Over time, if nothing else, I've had to loosen my grip on what I think, how I think things are supposed to be. Even when they're good, sometimes they're just not now. So I got to take him to dinner and I got to make those direct amends and it felt good, you know. I got to tell him everything I knew and then he got to tell me uh, some other things and a lot of his sentences started with, are you sure you want to hear this? And uh, I said, yeah, I, I want to hear it all. And, and uh, when it was all over, he said, you know, Carla, that's long forgiven, long forgotten. I just can't believe you're still alive. And he's right. If we're in this room this morning, we're the lucky ones, I believe. And I say lucky because I believe that God's grace reigns on everybody. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, somewhere inside the smallest piece of a breath inside a moment, I had to do something different. I couldn't feel like it first. I had to do it differently than I began to feel like it. And I made my way into a meeting later, made my way in. And I don't know what power that was or anything. I think we have to make some effort. Although, again, Harold talked about uh, uh, spiritual mathematics. And, and uh, I always like to say that my two and two adds up to God's five. God takes my two and two makes five. Uh, and I don't believe that God was in the car accident that saved that person. Then what happened to the God in the car where they didn't, you know? I don't know the answers to all those things. I don't know, but I don't believe that uh, God was in it. <laughs> I mean, for me, my concept of God now has been that God has been here all along. And, and Alcoholics Anonymous has been the thread that pulled, that, that started to unravel the curtain that stood between me and that spirit over time. First it was the alcohol and the other stuff. And then now it's just me. <laughs> That's big enough. Self. Self in the way. Self. Selfish. Self-centered. Self-seeking. <laughs> That was a long time to come, and I, I uh, left to Hollywood, and I hooked up with another boyfriend from another rehab, and you know that's where they keep the boyfriends and girlfriends and partners and anybody you might be looking for. So. And again, flying on the coattails of the '60s, loving the idea of peace and love and all that stuff. Just you know, we just couldn't stop beating the hell out of each other long enough to implement the principles fully of peace and love. You know, so. We beat each other up and down the California coast and pitched a tent in the mountains in southern Oregon and lived there till the rains came. And then we moved into a roofless cabin just north of Grants Pass. We were invited by our new spiritual advisor who lived up the hill in the plastic tent. And uh, there was an old log cabin up there from the miners from many years before, and it didn't have a roof on it, so we threw a plastic tarp over the top, called it a skylight, and then the baby came. And here's, you know, I thought that having this baby was going to change my life again. Having this baby, I was going to be the parent. I was going to, you know, they always talked about in therapy, you know, break the cycle. We're going to break the cycle. And I was going to be the parent I never had and all of that stuff. But I drink. She was supposed to be top priority. And alcoholism doesn't care who you love. Just doesn't. I drink and she becomes way down the list. And I would have told you that I love her. She's the most important thing, but she's way down the list. I drink. 
And we were drinking moonshine and homemade wine and beer and stuff like that because it's organic and much better for you. <laughs> she got in the way of one of our fights when she was about 10 months old, and um, I had to take her up the road where it's got to be better somewhere else. Always got to be better somewhere else. And my first legitimate work was in the bars. It never occurred to me not to drink on the job. Why else would you have that job? It just seemed I was being very efficient. <laughs> Worked in nice places and I made money. I just couldn't bring it home. Couldn't bring home enough money to pay rent for more than a week at a time. So we lived in the rent by the week motels and I drugged that kid from pillar to post until after a while uh, Idaho wasn't working for us anymore. We're back down in LA. I'm renting a room for my aunt in one place and I'm working at a job about 35 miles away. Again, not a bad place to work, but me, I'm the common denominator. My daughter was almost four years old by then and every afternoon I'd kiss her goodbye and I'd take off out of the bar where I worked and I'd stop at the halfway point because you get pretty thirsty, you know, driving all the way there and stop in every afternoon at my regular bar and have my shots of Corval Gold and Bud Vax. It got me ready to get up and go do my shift every, every afternoon like clockwork. And i go do my shift and crawl home in the wee hours of the morning and start all over again. And one afternoon I kissed her goodbye like I had done for months on end, stopped at that same bar on the way over to the bar, had those same drinks. And to this day, I don't know what was different on that day from the day before except for 24 hours because I didn't hate that job I was going to and I didn't love my daughter any less on that day than I love her today. But I sat on that bar stool and I drank those drinks and I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop long enough to get up and go take care of business in either direction. So I sat on the bar stool and I lost them both in one fell swoop. The kid and the job were gone. And I stayed and I lived in that area off the kindness of strangers there for a little while until I fell into another job at another dive bar. And now the people and the bars and the places I'm being and drinking and working, they're all getting increasingly rustic, including me, you know. And I love that little line in the big book that we all have our own version of this too, but you know what I'm talking about. He says, gradually things got worse. <laughs> and I married a man that I met there. He was taking good care of me. We were drinking buddies. I was kind of the loud one then. He was the real, he was the quiet one, although he drank as much as I did. And it started to irritate me. The people that I was drinking with were telling me things like, I don't think you should drink. Well, you're sitting right here with me. No, but I didn't get, I didn't get the difference between a hard drinker or even just a regular, moderate drinker and me. We're all sitting in the same place. And God, don't make, don't, let's not talk about letting go of the alcohol. Let's not talk about that. So he and I got married about the time we should have split up. And, uh, you know, I thought one more time he was going to save me if I made my life look like yours did. If I got the kid back, all of those things that, that uh, put the outside together. We became the neighborhood entertainment Settle our arguments with a shotgun. Uh, sometimes we'd have an argument. His ex-wife had given us a coffee table, and that was the first thing that would go rolling out the front door, furniture out in the courtyard, and the next morning just rolling it all back in like nothing ever happened and nobody saying anything. And I got that kid back for better or worse. But I went to my first AA meeting with the bro broken ribs and black eyes again. And our friend Mickey always likes to say that it wasn't so much the yets that bothered him, it was the own not agains, again and again and again. And I went to my first, uh, first AA meeting feeling very sorry for myself. He and I had gotten into a fight at the bar where we drank, and, and uh, so I'm at this meeting. I'd, I had uh, drunk dialed a battered women's shelter because that's what I thought I was. And, um, and I asked a woman to fix my life, and she asked me if I'd ever been to an AA meeting, and I don't, don't know how she made that leap, but she did. And, 
<laughs> so I found my way into this meeting. It was a perfectly wonderful meeting. It was right, or not well, not exactly around the corner, but very close to our, where we lived. And it's a perfectly wonderful meeting. It was there then, it's there now. I went in there with everything but readiness. Everything but readiness, everything but. And there was nothing you could have said to me to change it. Perfectly wonderful woman speaker stood up that night. I know she was a woman. I know she talked for about 40, 45 minutes only because of now I know that's how long we talk. But <laughs> the only thing I heard her say was that somewhere during her drinking career she switched to beer, so I did. I thought the representative from Alcoholics Anonymous said <laughs> recommends switch to beer. Well, because beer is not really drinking, is it? <laughs> You know, I thought it was more like a breakfast food, you know. <laughs> Hops and barley and wheat in it, you know, kind of like a whole grain breakfast food. And I, don't, I, I think we shouldn't do without it. Beer gave me the illusion that I was controlling my drinking. It get, let me get a little further into my day before everything fell apart. And then we moved across town. We were living in a little, uh, a little apartment. I had gotten one more attempt at a job. I had this little job answering phones for the city. It was a nice job. But now I'm in that I'm in that horrible, torturous place of alcoholism where I'm either really drinking or thinking about drinking. Some mornings I'd try to get up and go to work without taking those morning drinks. You know, those ones that got me right to get up and go just go in and be able to do my job. And it wasn't a big job, it wasn't a complicated job. Answer the phone, you know. When I'd go without those drinks, man, I'd shake and I, it would be all I could think about. All I could think about, can I make it to the break? Can I make it to lunch? And that went on for about a year. And I was no longer welcome in the, in the bars around town. I was just no longer welcome. I was drinking at home. Our lives were becoming very, very small. And I never bothered to take my daughter anywhere uh, anymore because we, I knew we could get there. I just wasn't ever sure we could get back. So we had one more of those, one more of those Saturday morning fire, Saturday afternoon fights. One more time, where the cops are in the driveway. One more time, the neighbors are watching us. One more time, the kids standing over in the corner in her mismatched clothes and her unkempt hair, and she got that look of fear in her eyes. One more time, I can't even try to tell her it's going to be any different. It had been different a long, long time. So the cops left, they took the gun, the husband left for the last time, it's me and the kid in the booze and I can't stop drinking. And here's where a hard drinker might take a look at their life and say, wow, man, I'm really sick of this. I am really sick of this. And they put the beer away, they probably threw away the rest of the beers, you know, they probably throw them away, have to, maybe even have to go to detox, maybe even have to go for a week or two and just get straight. They'd come back home, they'd have a little story to tell, but they would move on. That's a hard drinker. But me as an alcoholic, what I did was pull the 12% closer to the couch so I didn't have to keep getting up. And my first sponsor told me if, if I wanted to establish a, a, a conscious contact with a power greater than myself, if I, wanted, if I wanted to start to affect that, that I could start by counting the coincidences in my life. You know those times where I just things happened that seemed to be um, of benefit to all without me having my hands on it, you know, something like that. And one of the first ones I could count was that I had moved in next door to a woman who had five years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. And she had seen and heard that whole deal go down, and she came over a couple days later and brought me a big book and a 12 and 12. She was just a woman properly armed with the facts about herself. You know, she sat on my couch, she talked about her and her drinking, and I heard me. And then I realized that over the last year, I'd been watching her walk around the grounds, you know, and she seemed like 
great. You know, she hadn't been drinking at all, and what impressed me more about that was it didn't seem to bother her that she wasn't drinking. And that got my attention, because I don't know how you do that. I knew that uh, when I've got no steps or fellowship or God in my understanding, I didn't even know that part. I didn't even know that part was missing. When I've got no booze, I feel like you've stripped the coating off my wires. You know, I feel uh, oversensitive and underloved, and I don't know what you meant by that or why you looked at me that way. And my head closes in on me from there. I've become so self-centered. My reliance on alcohol is just such that that's, it's me. All I can think about, getting well, getting well, getting well. So I don't know how her 12 little thinly veiled Sunday school sentences are going to have any effect on me in the face of what I've become. I just didn't know. It just seemed like I, I mean, I had heard all those before. They're not new, you know. They had to be repackaged for us, so we think we invented them, really, truly. And, uh, and narrowed way down so that we can't mess with them either, right? No loopholes, just simple, straightforward. Read the black. But I didn't know if they were going to work for me. And she left that afternoon, and then about a week and a half later, I just didn't go back and buy any more booze, and exactly what I thought was going to happen happened. Started to see and hear things that weren't there. Started to get sick, started to shake into the night, into the next day, into the next day, into Monday and into Tuesday. By Tuesday afternoon, I'm stark raving sober again at that crossroads one more time. Instead of going to the store, I went next door to my neighbor and I asked her what to do. It was just a tiny little bit of willingness, tiny, tiny little bit of ability to turn right instead of left. And she sent me up to a meeting in Sierra Madre, California. That became my first home group, and I didn't know it. I went up there. I sat way back by the exit sign in the open door just in case. It wasn't my first AA meeting, but it was the one I went up there with some openness to, just enough, just enough. And I went up there, and I heard, I heard the music of AA. You know? The hope I heard came in the form of small talk, and people seemed to care about each other. You're asking each other questions like, hey, did you get a big book yet? Or do you need a ride home? Or... Did you get a sponsor? How's that four-step coming? Asking each other questions like you cared, you know. How's your lawn, Joe? Your lawn. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, could my life ever be so elegant and simple as to be concerned about a lawn again? You know, just to, just to, but it seemed like I was so far removed from any of that. It was always just about getting well and surviving and foraging and trying to hang on. Could I ever just sit back and smell the fresh cut grass? The secretary of that meeting did something very nice for me at the end. She came back and asked me to read that portion of chapter 11, a vision for you that we read at the end of a lot of meetings. And I took it from her and I said, yes. Just like oh, every time you ask me to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous, every time I say yes to what you ask me to do, it brings me into the room just a little bit more, even when I'm not in the room. You know, I said yes, and I came into the room as I read. I became part of. Just for a minute, I wanted more of that. And I started to realize over time when I did these little jobs in the meeting, like stacking chairs and making coffee, which was my favorite, doing all that stuff, I, I was, for a few minutes, I wasn't thinking about me. And I did not know that was the trouble, that I was just always thinking about me. Something happens to you, unless I thought about you for a minute, if something happens to you, what's going to happen to me? Then, you know, but it's always back to me, always down to me. When I'm doing something for somebody, I'm not thinking about me for just a minute. And I started to be relieved of the noise on the inside of my own head, and I love that. I wanted more of that. How do you do that? And these little commitments and jobs and 
and things that we did and, and being of service, picking up newcomers and going to uh, other meetings and all of that kind of stuff was, was uh, man, I wanted to be here. It kind of kept me stable and kept my feet on the ground until that internal thing could happen. And I believe the steps are important, and I, they, they, they come to every, that these changes, they come to everybody. I don't think there's just, you know, one magic way. Some people live on grace for a good long time. We hear it all the time, all of these different ways that, that finally, finally God came to somebody. But, but I believe, for me, that at some point I've had to make an effort to set the conditions for that to happen. Work in the steps however poorly, however inadequately, you know, doing what I did however inadequately, making all the mistakes that I make inadequately. But uh, but it's real and it's worked. And like I said, I did not stop thinking about drinking until I was about nine months sober and in the middle of making my amends to my family. Made that first round of amends, that declaration, and then a few things. But that has required a lot of follow-up. Long period of reconstruction ahead. Long period. And somewhere along the line, you know what that obsession sounds like. You know what it sounds like. It sounds like that kid following his mom around the grocery store wanting chocolate. You know what I mean? Mom, 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 mom. <laughs> Mom! <laughs> Until they finally throw themselves on the floor and create havoc. And that's what it sounded like until it didn't sound like that anymore. It had just been removed. It had been expelled. And I haven't had the obsession to drink in all this time. The thought has occurred, but the promise of the tenth step, what does it say? That we're in the <coughs> place of neutrality. As long as I continue to do and do what you gave me to do in the beginning, you know, and I believe I've got to continue to watch for selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty, and, and fear. You know, and then for me now, all these years later, it's down to fear. Man, what am I afraid of here? And then, you know, oh, into the into my later sobriety now, you know. We talk about emotional sobriety. It's so funny. Like it's a new, th like it's a different thing. Like we have to go to a different AA store to get emotional sobriety. That's how. We <laughs> Where's that book? <laughs> it's in the steps. We grow up, and Bill talked about that in the book, The Language of the Heart. Tracy's reading that right now, and and um, talked about emotional sobriety. You know, and that that uh, we. We do what we've always done. We do it again, you know, continue to take personal inventory. For us, you know, everybody, everybody in the world has ego. Everybody in the world has spirit. Everybody in the world has emotions and selfish and self-seeking. That's not, that's not alcoholism unless you're an alcoholic. And then when I don't take care of those, the stakes for me are a drink. That's what's at stake for me, and it states that again on page 84, again, or 85. You know, alcohol is a subtle foe, and for me, as an alcoholic, I've got to watch for these things. I can't tell those little white lies. I may not drink today, but I, yeah, I might drink six months from now. You know, there's always a setup. There's always something I can trace that back to. I've got to remember the stakes every day. It's about alcohol. It scares me when I hear people talk about it two, year, two, three years sober. Oh, it's not about alcohol anymore. Oh, yes, it is. Oh yes, it is. For me, the stakes are to take a drink. If I don't, if I don't do the things that you guys taught me to do in the very beginning, the stakes for me are taking a drink. 
and I'm watching. We're watching a good friend of ours right now. Somebody I sponsored a while ago, and then, then now, and then she became a friend and got another sponsor. Very, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and then get away slowly. Pull the curtain down again and again and again. Having had a spiritual awakening, you couldn't deny that she had had a spiritual awakening and was being of use to people all over the place, to her family. Shining example of Alcoholics Anonymous, but if we forget that, if we forget that it is, I will never be so spiritually fit that I can afford to take a drink of alcohol. You know, when we forgot to talk about it, we talk about the old oh, burning, the, the horribleness, the, the, oh, this guy died, that guy died, this, this horrible thing happened, but what about the good times? What happened for her is the good times happened. And I'm not sharing out of turn, this is something that she would share for, with you. The good times happened and school happened and then pretty soon not, uh, not hanging around alcoholics happened and not remembering what's at stake for us. And so she lost 13 years of sobriety and over the last 17 months she can't get three or four days together. And watching her over and over and over and come back in and she says, I know what it can be like. I know what it can be like. And we watch it over and over and over. You know, sometimes they're closer to us than others. But so it's real. So it's real. So my day starts on page 84 again. Alcohol is a subtle foe. It is about alcohol. I stand at the door. I'm here. Alcoholics, I stand at the door of, of Alcoholics Anonymous to watch the newcomer come in wearing active alcoholism so that I won't forget. And it's, it's not like I don't remember. Sometimes the, I, I have those visceral memories, those those things that I'm real grateful for, I try to keep those close. But there is nothing like working with a, with a newcomer to bring that back and to know the fears. And like my friend, you know, she knows. She knows the difference between how she is now and what it used to be like when it was good. And she can't get there. So please, it is about alcohol in that way. That's what the, those are the stakes for us as alcoholics. Anyway, uh, the obsession finally lifted, and then other women started asking me to sponsor them. I've got to tell you, the only fifth step I like better than mine is yours. Because <laughs> in your eyes, I see forgivability, I see lovability, I see redeemability, I see hope and growth where I don't always see it in myself. Like Sheldon talked about last night, you know, we see it, they tell us who we are. <laughs> and I think, God, I love you. You're not so bad. We, there's a way out of that. There's a way, just keep doing this. And, the, and something in me heals. After a couple of years, I didn't have, I had you guys, my daughter didn't have anybody. Now she's 11. She's starting to come home from, at all hours of the night. She's beat up and bloody. She's been jumped into a gang and starting to find her sense of family and camaraderie out in the street where I used to. She was an angry kid. She had 18-year-old those crawling in and out of her bedroom window, and she's 11. I'm getting calls from the police department every afternoon from work, or lots of afternoon, not every afternoon, lots of afternoons. And, and uh, you know, asking me if I'd authorize the party that was going on. And, so I had to get her some big help after a while and uh, I had to put her in a treatment center and I'll tell you, you guys taught me how to parent through the guilt it would have been so easy just to let it go just to let her do whatever she wanted and it's just too hard it's too hard to parent through the guilt 
you guys taught me how to do it. And you taught me how to keep my hands off of her because I, by that time I had become every bit the parent that I swore I'd never be. And I had to learn how to keep my hands to myself and to deal with her in a different way. And we needed a lot of help. And you guys didn't throw me away about that either. You taught me how to do it differently. You didn't bat an eye, as a matter of fact. So I put her in a treatment center. She was there for six months, and you guys taught me mountains are moved a spoonful at a time, and every day I just get up and give my big, best spoonful. I went there when they told me to, and I stayed away when they asked me to. And, and uh, she was there six months and then came out and lived with me for a little while, and then she wanted to go live with her dad, try it out. And it was for me to back up and let her go do that, shut up about what I thought of him and that whole deal and let her go do that. And then she came back eventually and came back to live with me, and she's got a relationship with both of us, her own relationship. Nothing narrated by me. Then she was uh, 15, and she and her boyfriend walked in one day, and they had a funny look on their faces, and they sat down, and I told them they were pregnant, and they nodded. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell her, I'll be there no matter what you decide. Whatever you decide, I'm there. I'm your mom. I'm going to be there. And I got to do that. I got to do it. And it was, oh, my God, it was hard for all of us. The pregnancy was great, but it was the aftermath. But I was present at the birth of my first grandson. He just turned 21 this last Wednesday. <laughs> He's a man now, you know. And my youngest grandson is 15. And, and uh, we're a family, you know. We were sitting around the table the other night, and we were talking about stuff and even making some drug jokes. Doug has been just such a great addition to our family because... He eases, I see my dad watch Doug, and I see his pain eased a little bit, and I'm not sure why, but uh, maybe the presentation inside Doug and knowing he's okay and knowing he takes such good care of me, I don't know what it is, but my dad is softened too. And we were all a family. And when I got here, I would have told you I didn't care about that. I wanted to get my daughter up and grown, and then we'd all be okay. And I didn't care what happened after that. I would have told you. I'll make amends at their graveside. And I've gotten so much more. And I didn't see it coming. Thank God. So while she was living with her dad, I turned five years sober. And, uh, you know, the big five, it was supposed to be this big thing, you know, and it kind of is, you know, it's a milestone, but, but I, didn't, I didn't know what that was going to be. And uh, I came home from the gym one night and I went to bed as usual and I woke up in the middle of the night with a man standing over my bed. He had a knife to my neck and his hand over my mouth and he said, don't say a word or I'll cut your head off. And he took the telephone cord and he tied my hands behind my back and he raped me and he robbed me that night in my room. And I want to tell you that at five years of sobriety, I had a much bigger God than I got here with. I, I trusted so much more. I knew. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't have fight or flight or didn't know I wanted to survive. Nothing like that. And, and I even had the question of why is this happening? But I knew that things were like they were supposed to be. I just didn't know why that was. You know, I just didn't know. And um, he was there for a few hours. And uh, at a strategic time, I kind of waited. He dropped the knife and then. I ran for the living room and I couldn't get out my front door. The bolt lock was stuck. And so he ended up, it, instead of making him more angry, he ended up just going out the window. He came in and um, he left the knife on the counter, which were the fingerprints that we were able to get later. But um, it turned out that I knew this guy. I'd actually watched him get sober 30 days before I did. 
and I watched his, him get his life, his wife, his kids, and everything back, and then I watched him join the church and leave AA behind, and when he went out, he went out like that. And what I chose to learn from that is, well, the big book tells us to be quick to see where religious people are right. This is where I learned the terms and conditions of my alcoholism. This is where I learned that I'm not one of those people who can go home after a Sunday sermon and have a glass of wine. You know, I love to go, I'm, I'm an and-and girl these days. You know, I think that works and that works. Whatever it is you're doing and that works. Wherever, our friend Howard Poland says, wherever you see God, mark that spot and go sit in that window again. That's where you're seeing it. Do it. That's it. Nobody can take that from you. So I don't think there's a right or wrong or any of that. But in church, we, we address all of those things in general. We address spirit in general. Here we address... We take spirituality and we shoot it right at alcoholism. This is where we talk about it. This is where this is where we sit in the front row to talk about it. There was a trial. They caught him, and there was a trial that uh, happened a couple weeks later. Or, well, they caught him a couple weeks later, and then a trial happened a few months later. And as part of the defense, they had a lot of the guys I'd known years before get up and testify as to who I used to be. And that included my ex-husband. Now, he was more inclined to testify on behalf of the rapist than he was for me. That's a mark I'd left on him. He's never been interested in any of my amends. So we had to get a, somebody to testify on my behalf, a character witness. And by that time, I'd been working at a big investment firm downtown Los Angeles, a big fancy place. I never would have walked in the front doors of this place years before. would have had no business being there. But because of Alcoholics Anonymous and you guys teaching me to go, just go show up and do what they ask you to do, Every day, day after day after day, I'd work my way up through the ranks and I was beginning to have a career. People like Henry Kissinger walked the, wall, the halls of this place, you know, and I was walking undetected for years. <laughs> but the department had volunteered to come and testify on my behalf. And uh, the defense told him all about who I used to be. And he said, well, maybe, he said, but she shows up early and she stays late. And she was where she said she was. And see, that's Alcoholics Anonymous speaking for itself. He didn't have to be coached. He just got up and told the truth as he'd experienced it through me. And then it was my turn to testify. And by now, you know, I'd, I'd had a sponsor named Lee up till that point. My first sponsor left AA for the church. And, and uh, my, uh, so my next sponsor, they were, the ladies were still not lining up to sponsor me. And so I asked Lee if he'd sponsor me. And he was just a good old boy. You know, I don't know why. I don't know if I argued or questioned too much or just, I don't know what it was. But they just, you know, I, so I asked Lee. And he was just one of those guys who'd say, very simple answers. You know, you'd say something that bugged you, and he'd go, well, that's going to feel a whole lot better as soon as it quits hurting. <laughs> he didn't say that about this, but he came over, and he put double locks on all my windows and doors, and he helped me make my apartment a safe place again. And then uh, we had to take some evidence down to the police department, and then we discovered that I needed to talk to a woman now. It was time. But both of us knew that. And because he knows that sponsorship is not ownership, he walked me right up to Marguerite. He, he recommended her. I told him I was thinking about asking two ladies, and he said, you know what, she, it just seems to me this woman. First thing she told me was, you're going to have to forgive this guy. And I know she's right. I know we're people who can't handle even seemingly justifiable resentments. But the guy had scared me. And at five years of sobriety, fear, anger was still my favorite way to respond to that kind of fear. You know, anger made me feel, and still can, make me feel like a, um, a, it's a momentum, like, a, like you can't hurt me. Like, um, but God, at five years of sobriety, anger was kind of like a suit that didn't fit anymore. You know, couldn't be angry, could not be angry. Stood at the turning point. Oh, 
seven-step prayer became my mantra. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get from here to there. I know I want to. You know, what does the book say? Moral and philosophical convictions galore. I want to be that. I'm stuck with this. I can't get, can't get there. So I needed help. Had the opportunity to start to, to practice or tar- start to see, try to see something differently. And so I'm asking God to help me forgive this guy. And um, we got to the, uh, we got to the trial, and it was my turn to s- sit in the witness stand. And when I got up there, I looked out and I saw him sitting at the at the defense table. And, it, and it's a place where I've sat before, and I could sit again. And it occurred to me, if I were to take a drink, I could be sitting in his very seat. It's like it talks about in that prayer at the top of page 67 in the big book. Though we didn't like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, he liked me. They, like ourselves, are perhaps spiritually sick. He liked me. He liked me. Sheldon talked about it. Harold talked about it. Doug talked about it. He liked me. We never forgive from a spiritual hilltop ever, ever, ever. Can't. It's impossible. And I started to see the he in me. And just like a little crack of light under the doorway, that spirit of forgiveness began to show up or began to manifest. I think the forgiveness came. I think the healing took a while longer, about a year and a half, for the nightmares and all that stuff to finally go away. But it did. Every now, every now and then I'd get a letter from the prison saying he was going to be released, and so I'd have a kind of a rough couple of days trying to get situated with that again, and, and then I'd be okay again. But it came. Because we're people who can't handle even seemingly justifiable resentments. The forgiveness frees the forgiver and gives it the gives them the opportunity to be free too, gives everybody the opportunity to be free. The detective who worked, oh, he was sentenced to 20 years and he did 17 and then, like I said, he's not been able to stay out of prison. I know it works in prison. I've had the opportunity to go talk to some of those guys in prison. Some of them are never getting out. Some of them are sober longer than I am because they've availed themselves of AA inside those walls and I know they walk spiritually free and they help each other and I've seen it. And the detective who worked the case came to me after it was all over and he said, I don't know who you were back then, I'm not even sure I want to know, but whatever it is you're doing now, keep doing it because it seems to be working. And see, that's Alcoholics Anonymous speaks for itself. You know, lots of things have happened. Life keeps happening. Life keeps happening. I had that question, you know, why me? Is it because, you know, the st- stuff like that would happen when I was out on the street, but I expected that. You know, it wasn't like it was, we deserve, I don't believe anybody ever deserves it, but it's a lot more likely to happen when you're out there getting into strange cars with strange men doing strange things. You know, it's a, it's a lot more likely to happen. But so I'm thinking, I started asking around, am I, is that my karma maybe? Is that maybe something that's just going to happen to me every once in a while? Because why? I don't know. Is this a teaching tool? <laughs> and the old timers just said, no, you just got in the way of somebody not looking to do God's will. Just got in the way. Just like people got in your way when you weren't looking to do God's will. Oh, like me. Like me. God, when I see that, it makes it a little bit easier to walk around. Not that I don't get it. Not like that I don't get self-centered fear and I, and I can judge and I can... But I catch it a lot quicker and I see like me everybody's just trying everybody's just really doing the best they can and I used to hate hearing that everybody's just doing the best they can I don't think so I didn't think so 
But God, the more we stand in each other's shoes, the easier it is to see, isn't it? So, I've been bankrupt, ran into a, a met a guy. I thought that was my present, my gift, after, after going through such a hard time. I met a, met a business partner and a boyfriend all at the same time. And, and uh, long story short, you know, I, I really became that head of household who thought I needed to catch up and make up for lost time. And it became all about the money and the status and all of that stuff and what sobriety is supposed to look like on the outside, forgetting so much about how it felt on the inside. And having to stop. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but over time, over 28 years, I've had to stop and regroup a few times. Ended up bankrupt at 10 years sober. <coughs> paid back a bunch of money I didn't want to pay back. And I kind of did, but I didn't think I could, and then I did. And got to buy a condo. You know, lots of these things happen. Simultaneously, I can be fearful, happy, joyous, angry, all of those things all at one time. You know, I just don't listen to them so much anymore. You know, okay. Uh, my dad doesn't have to sit up nights anymore watching the news to make sure his daughter's name isn't on the list of the victims of the serial killers of the day. You know, he sleeps well and he knows why. And that's a story he had to tell me till he was about till I was about 12 years sober. How he used to, and I had to let him. I mean, he I knew he needed to say this to just kind of say it. You know, I used to. I used. To, he knew it wasn't rational, but. But uh, when I was out there and, and he hadn't heard from me in a year or sometimes more, uh, and he knew people like the Hillside Strangler and the Green River Killer and all those people were out there running around, uh, he knew it wasn't rational, but he felt like if he watched the news that uh, if he didn't hear my name called when they were talking about the victims, then he could allow himself to sleep over and over and over and over again. And so I needed to let him tell me that story over and over and over and over again. So one afternoon, about 12 years sober, take him to lunch, and he starts again. What? He starts again. Has, haven't we talked about this enough? I'm thinking, God, never say that out loud. <laughs> you know, this is, there is a point where, you know, acting better than you think really comes in handy. And, and so I'm listening, and, and uh, he says, you know, I have no pictures of you when you were a teenager. And I'm thinking, now what the hell am I going to do about that? <laughs> and I think, I've got sharp objects. I'm just going to get it over with now. And, uh, and so he, he continues and he says, but, if, but to see you now, I wouldn't, trade, I wouldn't trade who you are now for all the pictures in the world. And see if I'd have stabbed him, I'd have missed that. <laughs> My mom, my mom passed away just a month before Doug and I started dating, and my friend Carol swears that she died and went straight to God and said, now listen. <laughs> um, I told you earlier, when my, my, about two years before I got sober, my baby sister committed suicide, and while she was laying on life support in a hospital in uh, Southern California, the family would gather in the waiting room, and I'd go out to the van where my booze was, and I'd drink, and I'd come back in, and I'd just rake my mother across the coals, and I'd talk to her in a way a daughter should never talk to her mother, especially when her baby lay dying in the next room. But it was all about me, right? What my mother had done, all of these things. And I couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I don't know how you make amends for a thing like that. Except that when I got sober, I was told to call her once a week. She lived out of state. 
and uh, to call her once a week and just listen and try to find out how I might add to her life instead of take for a change. And even in all of that, even in all my efforts, she still gave me so much more. And I didn't understand my mom for a really, really long time. She had had a, a long uh, period of a long relationship with prescription drugs and things, and so I didn't understand. I didn't see it from uh, the outside point of view what that looked like. You know, she drank for a long time until she started getting the scripts, and then, you know, lo and behold, she didn't have to drink anymore. But uh, we got very, very close, you know, just having those conversations, and I learned some things about my mom. And, and uh, we got so close that when my baby brother died of this disease a, a few years later, I got to go up and be the kind of daughter my mother needed while she buried yet a second child. And I don't know what kind of pain that is for a parent, but I know that this time, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. I was her go-to girl this time. And when she passed, we were clean and clear. In fact, so much so that my stepfather, the third one, he took, and they had a long relationship, and, and uh, they were just a really great example in love and devotion. I just they took such good care of each other. And when, uh, when my stepfather found out that Doug and I were heading down uh, the trail for matrimony, he called me one day and he said, listen, I know that as you guys are going to eventually end up married. He said, what I'd like to do, I know, I know your mom left you all her jewelry, including her wedding ring, and what I'd like to do is shine mine up and give it to Doug so the rings will be together again. And so those are the wings that we wear. And, um, my daughter, that little girl, you know, she grew up, she's 38 years old now, and just a couple of years ago, I sat with my husband and my father and all the kids and all the extended family, and we watched her collect her master's degree. And just a, a few months ago, when that whole horrible, tragic mess happened in San Bernardino, she was on the crisis impact team that went in afterward and, and uh, helped those families get started to put their lives back together. And I'm so proud. I'm so proud and pleased. Not, not, not because she's who she is, and because or in spite of me, but I get to be a privileged witness. I'm a privileged witness to the things that happen in my family's life and in the lives of the women that I sponsor. And in the eyes of their kids. Have you ever looked at the eyes of a kid who sees their mother's sponsor coming? <laughs> There's hope in those eyes. There was hope in my daughter's eyes when she saw mine coming. And I've seen it in their kids. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but somewhere around 17 years sober, I, I, did you ever get so like involved in you so rigid? Did you ever get rigid? Not Maybe not in St. Louis. Maybe they don't do that here. <laughs> so involved in <laughs> So involved in being perfect, you know, it's, we call it perfectionism, but it has nothing to do with being perfect at all. Let me tell you, it, it's just, now you're just obsessed with the idea of being so. And because I fell short, I felt like everybody else should be perfect. And so I was that sponsor, right? Just like, you know, and all my sponsees are like, I don't want to call her, you call her. Just, <laughs> I love her, but I don't want to talk to her. You know, it's like, <laughs> and uh, I walked by Clancy one time and he said, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. And I said, that's right. You know, and it's very funny when you, you know you know that there's some growth coming when the things you used to be kind of proud about, now you kind of want to hide. You kind of want to tone down, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and I really believe that God answers questions I just want to ask out loud. I don't even always know that those questions need asking, right? This might sound silly to some of you, but it really was a truth. Um, it really happened for me, and that is that... Uh, I've always done a prayer to meditation, always had to do um, 
something that made me feel like I was heading in that connection, you know, get establishing and growing that connection, that conscious contact with that power greater than myself. Since the beginning, reading, sitting, and then, uh, then I did physical things because I believe that is a great antidepressant. It's been my experience that physical exercise is great. Not the only things, not the cure for alcoholism. Hear me. That's, don't come up afterward and go, when did you, when did, where does it say that in the book? But, but Bill did, <laughs> Bill did talk about physical exercise as an addition. And so, you know, I was a, a, a rollerblader, you know, and there's, the rollerblade is very zen, you know. You, I was me and the dolphins on the beach, and I was like, shh, shh, you know, you come, here comes the curb. You don't argue with the curb. You lift your foot. The curb exists. You know. You don't acknowledge the curb. You fall on your face. Very zen. Tried surfing for a little while. My friend Lisa used to say that surfing was kind of like being in a domestically violent relationship without actually having to have a boyfriend. I like that too. And. Um, Anyway, I eventually I wandered into a ballroom dance studio and I was going in for a free rumble lesson. Had no idea what or why or what this meant. Went in there and you cannot be stiff and brittle to do the rumba. You can't. You've got to get a wiggle on. Right? You do know. And so I get in there, I get about halfway through this dance with the teacher and he stops in the middle and he says, Oh, Carla, do not try to dance like a good girl. I don't think they will believe you anyway. <laughs> to let people in and let go of that perfectionism and that rigidity and that, that uh, horrible need, fear to keep you away, you know, to start to relax just a little bit more into my life. And that's happened in layers and layers and layers and over time, you know. And, and uh, it's not that I never, it's just been a continuum, you know. We just keep going. The awakening continues. We've had one, now it continues. And, and um Anyway, I love ballroom dancing. It did this for me. It just reminded me. We always need reminders of, of that conscious contact. And what it did was, was it, uh, it allowed me to stand in frame. When I stood in frame and I wasn't worried about the step I was about to take and, and when I wasn't worried about the, or upset about the steps I just took, when I just stood in frame and I allowed myself to be led, I never knew exactly what, what pattern we were executing until it was over. But in the meantime, I got to experience that beautiful, beautiful time moment that was now, right now, right here, where the God is, where I always experience God as I understand him, as I experience him. My friend Don Newcomb, the, uh, I, I, I promise I'm getting done. <laughs> okay. My friend Don Newcomb, he was the, the convict, not the baseball player. He, uh, <laughs> he said to me one time, he said, uh, I was really worried about that ballroom dancing thing for a while. He said, I thought it was going to take you away from AA. You loved it so much. It's like to light you up. It did something for you. And he said, but when, what I see now that had to happen was that little girl who went to North Beach had to step aside so the lady who dances could come out. Aww. You know, and I am with my, I have heard people walking ahead of me and I have, and the pe my contemporaries in sobriety have discovered this and I as well, is that my sobriety has been less about addition than it has been a subtraction. It's been more about letting go of the thing and the people and the, the, the ways that I am not than it has been becoming something else. And if you're new, I hope you come in here and join the journey. Just step on the road. And it doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to be here. Thanks for letting me share.